0: Morning. Take out your copy of the Scriptures and turn to Luke chapter ten. We continue in our study through the Gospel of Luke. Now, the last two Sundays, we've been in this larger section in which Jesus sends out the seventy-two. The harvest is plentiful. The Lord of the harvest sends them out as laborers into his harvest on a mission to proclaim the kingdom of God, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to tell anyone and everyone that the kingdom of God has come near. And the 72 come back from this little missions trip rejoicing. Lord, even the demons are subjects to us in your name. But even as Jesus affirms them in that ministry and promises to protect them as they continue taking on spiritual enemies, uh, even as he acknowledges the joy of ministry, he points them to a yet greater joy, a greater joy than anything this life has to offer. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. A reminder to them, and by extension, us the reader, that regardless of what joys the things that we do for Jesus, like ministry, might bring, any such joys pale in comparison to the joys found in what Jesus has done for us, that is the gospel. And that brings us to our passage for this morning. Luke chapter 10, verses 21 through 24. Now before we read the passage, I want you to see how closely connected it is to what's come before, like what we've covered in the past few weeks. And so you see how our passage starts with the phrase, in that same hour he rejoiced in the holy spirit. We say in the same hour as what? Well, given the immediate context, it's got to be the same hour as the return of the 72. And so the 72 come back, They're rejoicing about their ministry. Their rejoicing is then redirected, right? Rejoice not in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then in that same hour, Jesus rejoices in the Holy Spirit. And so even as Jesus commands them to rejoice in the gospel, on our passage this morning, Jesus himself is going to rejoice in the gospel. So with that said, let's read the text now. Luke chapter 10, verses 21 through 24. Hear the word of the Lord. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Now, this might surprise you if you've never really thought about it, Uh, at least it surprised me this past week. Uh, This passage is the only place in the Gospels where we're explicitly told about Jesus rejoicing. Now, That's not to say that he never rejoiced. Uh, Jesus was a joyful man. Sure, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But he was a perfect man who rejoiced in always doing the Father's will. He was filled with the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is joy. He, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And he would tell his disciples, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. That's the kind of promise that can only be made by someone who himself had the fullness of joy in him. Jesus was joyful. But this is the only explicit mention in the Gospels of Jesus rejoicing. And so that should make our ears particularly perk up at what he's about to say. Like, what are the things in which Jesus rejoices in this passage? And as those who strive to be like Jesus, as those who want to love what Jesus loves... I want to rejoice in what Jesus rejoices in. Well, what can we take away from this passage as to what should be the sources of our joy? So, from this text, let's look at three sources of joy to which Jesus points us. And point number one is joy in sovereignty. Joy in sovereignty. Jesus points us to joy In God's sovereignty, look at what he says in verse 21 I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus here is praying to God the Father, and clearly this is a prayer of thanksgiving. I thank you. Remember the context. The 72 come back from their mission trip. Jesus directs them to focus their joy on their salvation, that their names are written in heaven. And that causes him to also rejoice, to rejoice in their salvation. Specifically, it causes him to rejoice in God's sovereignty over that salvation. We see that even in how he addresses God the Father in this prayer. You see how first he calls him, father. It's a term of endearment, uh, one that demonstrates a deep, abiding relationship. If you read through the Gospels, you'll see that often Jesus addresses God as father. But it's the second term that Jesus uses here that really catches our attention. Lord of heaven and earth. Because that's a term that at least as recorded in the Gospels, is unique to this prayer. It's a term connoting sovereignty, power, right? That God is the Lord, the ruler, the king, and not just Lord of some small territory or even a nation or a kingdom. No, he is Lord of everything, heaven and earth. That's a a merism uh, describing all of creation, like everything, And part of being Lord of everything, like ruling over the entire universe, part of that is being sovereign over man's salvation. Look at how Jesus describes that sovereignty. You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. These things, again, think about the context things pertaining to salvation having your name written in heaven. God, as part of being Lord of heaven and earth, as part of being sovereign over all things, has hidden things pertaining to salvation from some and has revealed things pertaining to salvation to others. Acknowledging that to be true. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Well, Jesus rejoices. Point number one, joy and sovereignty. Uh, Sometimes you will hear this kind of teaching uh, that God is sovereign over man's salvation. You'll hear it referred to as Reformed theology or Calvinism or the doctrines of grace. But at the end of the day, like, what should we call it? It's a far less important question than is this what the Bible teaches? And it turns out that the Bible does teach, not just in our passage, but throughout the scriptures, that salvation belongs to the Lord. That salvation is from beginning to end God's work. That in and of himself, being totally depraved because of sin, man cannot come to God. A man cannot make a decision for God. Man cannot choose God on his own. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. And so it's God who must do the entire work of granting life to a spiritually dead sinner. And so Jesus says, and John six forty four. no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so God chooses who will be saved, not based on anything in us, but based purely on his good pleasure, what Jesus calls here your gracious will in this prayer. And he sovereignly draws his people to salvation by granting them faith. And so it says in Acts 13.48 that when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So who believes and is saved? Well, Those whom God has appointed to eternal life. And so for some, those whom he has chosen, those whom he has drawn, those whom he has appointed, God has revealed these truths that they might believe and find salvation and eternal life in Christ. But for others, those whom he has not chosen, those whom he has not drawn, those whom he has not appointed, God has hidden these same truths that they might continue in their sin and receive the eternal judgment that their sins deserve. Now, you might think, well, that's not fair. Well, that's not fair that God doesn't choose to reveal himself to some people. And so those people are going to be eternally judged for their sin while others receive mercy. Well, you certainly wouldn't be the first to raise that objection. Paul actually addresses that exact objection in Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He has mercy, that's the equivalent of God revealing in our passage, and he hardens. That's the equivalent of God hiding in our passage. And Paul's point here is that God, or he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he has the right to do that. He has the right to do whatever he wants. He has the right to display his free mercy to whomever he wants. Continuing in verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases, and that includes revealing his salvation to some while keeping it hidden from others. Now, one consequence of the fact that God is 100% sovereign over salvation, uh, that he will save whomever he wills to save, is that salvation has nothing to do with who we are, uh, with our wisdom or our intellect, or credentials, or merit. So again, look at what Jesus says in his prayer. You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Now that's not to say that the wise and understanding can't be saved. You think about it elsewhere. He tells his disciples to be wise as serpents, to be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock, Jesus is not anti-wisdom, right? Jesus is not anti-understanding. Rather, he's saying that because of God's sovereignty and salvation, salvation is about God revealing spiritual truths, that it's not just the wise and understanding who are just going to figure it out on their own. It was a common understanding back then in Jewish culture that salvation comes to the wise. You know, the Pharisee types and the Sadducee types, the elites. But Jesus flips that script on its head because salvation isn't about human intellect or wisdom, wisdom of the world, or social status. That's exactly the point that Paul's making in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and following. The word, of the, Lord, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, To save those who believe. From the vantage point of worldly wisdom, the gospel looks like folly. It looks like foolishness. And so for many of the wise and understanding of the world, at least those to whom God has not revealed the glories of the gospel, the seeming foolishness of the gospel, of the cross, acts as a stumbling block so that they remain in unbelief. But while God can hide the gospel from the worldly wise so that they just can't figure it out on their own with their own worldly wisdom, God can, in his mercy, also reveal the things of salvation to little children. That's not literally referring to little children, although literal little children would certainly be included in the broader category. This is referring to those that the world would look down on. The lowly, the humble, and the weak of the world. The poor in spirit. What is foolish in the world? What is low and despised in the world? Those who might have been thought of as unlikely candidates for God's blessing. God can reveal the truths of salvation to them. That's a shocking turn of events. Especially in that culture which so prized status and stature. uh, That exalted the haves over the have-nots. That celebrated the wise and the powerful while looking down on the lowly. That would have been a shocking statement in that culture. Let me show you an illustration of that mindset from John chapter 7. You've got the Pharisees. They would have been considered the wise and understanding in that culture. And they're all mad because people are following Jesus. And look at what they say in verses 47 to 49. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. To use the words of our passage, have any of the wise in understanding believed in him? But these little children are accursed. To which our passage would reply, well, God has revealed these things to little children and has hidden them from the wise and understanding. The sovereignty of God in Salvation. It is, a, it is a biblical doctrine. It is a glorious doctrine. And if we're understanding it rightly, it's also a very humbling doctrine for believers. Because it means that you're a wretched sinner with nothing good in you to merit God's favor. That you could literally do zero to contribute to your salvation. It was all God from beginning to end. And it's not because you're so wise or you're so clever or you're so understanding that you figured it out. No, it's entirely because God, in his loving kindness, according to his gracious will, has revealed it to you. And so it's kind of tragically ironic that those who understand the sovereignty of God in salvation best sometimes have a reputation for being very proud and arrogant. Like, that literally makes no sense. What do you have that you did not receive? And what do you know that has not been revealed to you? But going back to our passage, just imagine for a moment that you are one of the 72. Like, you're there. Jesus is rejoicing, and he's thanking God because of his sovereignty in salvation. You see, this is, for them, Much more than just like a theological treatise on the doctrines of grace. Uh, This is intensely practical for them. Because you remember they just went out. And Jesus promised that they would be rejected. That they would be as lambs in the midst of wolves. So presumably their message of the kingdom of God was rejected by many. But here, as they hear Jesus pray about the sovereignty of God in salvation, well, now they're reminded that it's not necessarily because they weren't being faithful or they're just not effective evangelists or, hey, maybe next time you go out, you got to spice up the message a little bit. No. Ultimately, they were rejected because these things, things pertaining to salvation, were hidden from those who rejected them. And how about those people who did receive them? Who did receive the message of the kingdom of God? Well, it's not that the 72 were just really convincing salesmen. Or just particularly effective in communicating on those days. Or the temperature and the lighting in the room was just right. Now, ultimately, it's because these things, right? Things pertaining to salvation... These things were revealed to those who received them. Just think about how helpful and practical this must have been for the 72 to hear, even as they reflect on their own ministries. And while the specifics of our ministries, what we're called to do for the Lord, it's different in some ways from the 72. For example, we're not called or given authority, or equipped to cast out demons. But the overall mission, to proclaim the kingdom of God, that remains the same. And so the same overarching principles of the sovereignty of God and salvation needs to inform all of our ministry efforts, all of our evangelism. Our salvation belongs to the Lord. He hides things from the wise and understanding, and he reveals them to little children which means that the ultimate salvation of the unbeliever to whom we're ministering, it's much more than a sum of our technique and our skill and our persuasiveness and our reasoning. God, the Lord of heaven and earth, must reveal himself to that person. And perhaps the clearest indicator of whether we really get that or not is how much we prioritize praying to the Lord of the harvest in our evangelism and in our ministry. Do we really believe in the sovereignty of God in salvation? Well, if we do, we're going to pray. Point number one joy in sovereignty. That brings us now to point number two the joy in revelation. Joy and Revelation. Jesus talks about God revealing and hiding in verse 21. And now in verse 22, his focus is on how God reveals. Look again at that verse. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And he's talking about his authority in all things, how the Father entrusts all things into his hand. And particularly in this context, remember verse 21. Uh, he's referring to things pertaining to salvation. And so he says, no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. You see how Jesus brings us in to kind of the, the nature of the Trinity, that there's this relationship of intimacy, this, this depth of knowledge, this intra-Trinitarian love that's existed for all eternity between the three persons of the Godhead, Specifically, here focusing on the Father and the Son. Like that by itself would be this remarkable uh, theological statement that we could meditate on for hours. But now look at what Jesus adds to that statement. By adding to that statement, Jesus is going to throw off what otherwise is this perfectly symmetrical and parallel statement. But look at what he adds no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. and and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And so believers, like the 72, and believers like me and you, were brought into that relationship of knowledge and love between the Father and the Son. How? By the revelation of the Son. So right there, we see how the Trinity works harmoniously, right? In concert, in unison, because in verse 21, Jesus talks about revelation being something that the Father does. And in the very next verse, Jesus talks about revelation being something that the Son does. But we also learn from this verse that the content of revelation, like what is being revealed It's more than just knowledge or facts or trivia or theories. It's God himself. Because another way to phrase what Jesus says in verse 22 is that if Jesus chooses to reveal the Father to you, then you know who the Father is. You know who the Father is. So the content of revelation, like what is revealed is nothing less than knowing God and knowing the Father, a real relationship with God. Friends, that is an astounding truth. That we can, to some degree at least, know who God is. You realize that left to ourselves, because of our spiritual ignorance, because of our sin— we would be no different than the people of Athens. You guys remember the story from Acts chapter 17. Paul goes to Athens and he sees all these idol worshipers and all their idols, their objects of worship. One of those objects of worship is an altar to the unknown God. That would be us. Like we would know that God exists. His creation makes that plain. But as we suppress the truth in unrighteousness, like that's all that we'd be left with. Uh, some unknown God. But God has revealed himself to us in his Son. The radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And so he is no longer the unknown God. Uh, Now we know what he is like uh, through Jesus' incarnation. And so in that sense, whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father but this statement in verse 22 goes even further. Because remember, when the Son reveals the Father, it's not just that we know more facts about God. Like, oh, Jesus, in his incarnation, he, he shows us what God is really like. That's true, but it's more than that. When the Son reveals the Father to us, we're brought into this relationship of love with the Father through Jesus. Jesus. And in order to do that, Jesus had to do a lot more than just come to Earth as God incarnate to show us what God is like. In order to do that, well Jesus had to die for our sins, because it's our sins that have separated us from a holy God. It's our sins that have made knowing and being reconciled to a holy God impossible for us. And so Jesus had to die that our sins might be forgiven. He had to take upon himself all of the sins of his people and suffer the wrath and judgment of God in our place. And so Jesus dies on a cross. But three days later, he rises again from the dead to show that this payment was accepted. Why? So that we might know God. So that we might have eternal life with God. And so through Jesus the Son, no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Through the Son, the work of the Son, friends, we are made into sons of God ourselves. To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. And that, right, going back to our main point, that is cause to rejoice. Now just think about that. That God, in his kindness and love for sinners like me and you, would send his son to reveal himself to us. He would send his son to the cross to draw us into a reconciled relationship of love and knowledge with him. Basically, the gospel. Friends, that is a reason for all of God's people to rejoice. Point number two, joy and revelation. Friend, if you don't know God in that way today, you are not a Christian. You see, even in this verse, Jesus gives us the good news because this knowledge of God's salvation, he says it's for anyone who would receive him. Look again at verse 22. It's for anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Anyone, regardless of your past, regardless of how long you've been hardened in unbelief, regardless of the sins that you've committed, regardless of what other people may think about you, anyone which can include even you. Going back to verse 21, it's not just the wise and understanding who are going to grasp this. It's not just the intellectual elites who are capable. It's not just those who grew up in church and know all the stories who can be saved. Our friends, it's anyone to whom Jesus reveals these truths. Who, as a result of Jesus revealing these truths to them cries out to him in mercy. Or as Paul would put it, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, point number two, joy and revelation. Which brings us now to point number three, joy and blessings. Blessings. Reading verses 23 and 24 again. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And you think about some of the the greats, if you will, of the faith. Think about Abraham and Isaac Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses, you know what they all have in common? Well, they were all great men of God. They were men who loved God, men who trusted God, however imperfectly, men who God used in many, many ways. But they were also all men who, in spite of all of the blessings they experienced, in spite of the, the powerful grace and kindness of God that they experienced firsthand, Well, Hebrews 11 tells us that they didn't receive the things promised, at least in their lifetimes. That even as they looked forward to God's salvation, the fulfillment of the promises of God, they could only greet them from afar. But, Jesus tells us, 72, those things... That even these heroes of the faith could only look forward to God's salvation? What was now here in the person of Jesus? And so he tells the 72 to rejoice in the unique blessings that they have. Blessed are you. The unique blessings they have in experiencing the kingdom of God has come near. The unique blessings they have in personally knowing the king of that kingdom. The Lord Jesus Himself. The unique blessings they have in seeing Him perform His wondrous works. When the Christ appears, will He do more signs than this man has done? The unique blessings they have in hearing Him just expound His marvelous teachings. No one ever spoke like this man. What an immense blessing! An immense privilege, like what a cause to rejoice. That's something that Simeon understood. You remember him all the way back from chapter 2. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, like his whole life, he has been longing to see God's salvation, and he sees it, even if but for a moment. Uh, but for a day, he sees it as he holds the baby Jesus in his arms and he rejoices. Lord, now you are letting your dep- servant depart in peace according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation. What Simeon saw just this little glimpse of, what the disciples saw even more fully, uh, Jesus says those are things That many prophets and kings like long to see. Many prophets. You think of the prophet Isaiah. I mean, can you imagine what is going through his mind as he's writing Isaiah chapter fifty-three? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Like as he's writing that. As they longed to see what the disciples saw. And hear what they heard. Isaiah, who saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him, even as he's experiencing this vision of the thrice-holy God in Isaiah chapter 6, well, Isaiah longs to see what the disciples saw and long to hear what they heard. But it's not just the prophets, it's also the kings. You think about our good friend King David. David. David, who wrote Psalm 110 about Jesus. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Like, even as he's writing that, David longed to see what the disciples saw and longed to hear what they heard. David, who foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Like, even as he's writing Psalm 16, David longed to see what the disciples saw, and longed to hear what the disciples heard. It's not just prophets and kings. First Peter one even tells us that angels long to look into these things. Point number three: joy in blessings. Friends, have you ever reflected on the joy of your blessings? Like many prophets and kings, they looked forward and they saw only in shadows and types and promises all of the glorious truths that we now know in substance and reality. God's salvation in Jesus, like his incarnation as the God-man, a fully God and fully man. His substitutionary death on the cross for sinners, the righteous for the unrighteous. His victorious resurrection from the dead, raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, his ascension and his session, seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, like those are all things that the prophets and the kings, even the greatest of them, the godliest of them, only understood in part, in types, in shadows, in promises those are all things that we now understand in substance and reality. Friends, what an amazing blessing we have. But as we think about our own situation, we can go even beyond what the 72 had. We can go even further in considering our blessings. Because the 72, they only had parts of God's word. We now have the entirety of his word for his people, the Old and New Testaments. And while the Holy Spirit has always been active in regenerating God's people, like we who are God's people today, we literally have the third person of the Trinity indwelling us. Consider that we have thousands of years of church history of faithful saints who've gone before us and we are able to benefit from their sacrifices and their study. Think about the fact that we have personal Bibles in our own homes, in our own language. And just think about that. That is something that previous generations literally died for. And for each of us, We can get a personal copy of God's word literally in two days. We live in a country which we can gather freely to worship Christ. That is something that Christians for centuries, and even Christians today around the world in restricted countries, uh, that they would never take for granted. My friend, have you ever considered just how Immensely blessed you are. But you know what Jesus said. To whom much was given, of him much will be required. We have been immensely blessed in so many ways. But shame on us if we don't take full advantage of those blessings that we've been given. And perhaps that starts with simply recognizing them and rejoicing in God's kindness in giving us those blessings. Point number three, joy and blessings. So that's our passage, Luke chapter 10, 21 through 24, joy and sovereignty, joy and revelation, joy and blessings. Each one of those by itself, on their own, Would be like this endless fountain of joy for us to fix our minds on. But all three, brothers and sisters, we have a lot of rejoicing to do. Let's pray. Father, indeed, our cup overflows with joy. Joy that you, in your sovereignty, have drawn sinners to yourself, even sinners such as us. Joy that you have revealed yourself through the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ, that we might be reconciled to you. Enjoy in the immense blessings and privileges that you have afforded to us, that we can look back on and know the very things that prophets and kings longed to see. Father, help us to be a thankful people. Help us to be a joyful people. Help us to be a Christ-centered people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.